Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and on Paralyzed Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and no Amanda today. She's again off being mom and doing important things and taking care of doctor's appointments and whatnots. And so today it is me talking with Amber Jewell. Amber is the author of Finding Hope, 12 Keys to Healing Hardships, Hurt, and Sorrow. And I think I want to get into part of that with her, especially that that sorrow word. Like I understand that one more than most do. And I learning how to heal that is something that most people really, really need to understand because we have those in our worlds and we try to hide them and cover them up and not admit that they're there and we never get around to healing them. And that comes out as problems later. And that is a book that depending on when this comes out, I think if you've heard this going to be most likely around the end of August, but as of August 31st in 2021, you can go find this book. If it's before that, you can pre-order it. So go out and find it. It is Amber Jewell is the name of our author today. And she is also the uh, the president of the board for the Successful Survivals Foundation. Yeah, I said survival. I meant Su- Successful Survivors Foundation. I'm going to get this right. <laughs> Amber, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. I love your humor. <laughs> well, you know, if I don't laugh at me, everybody else will, and I'll miss out on the joke. So I just have to join in with it. <laughs> I'm going to mess up on a regular basis. And if people listen to this podcast, you're going to hear me misspeak. One of the things that a lot of people may or may not know about me is I've had several strokes in my life. Um, it's, it's a genetic thing. It's something that I had going on, a condition I had in my heart that hopefully is all fixed now, but I've had like six small strokes in my life. And so I just blame it all on the stroke brain because sometimes words come up and they come out and I, hear it and I go, that's not the word I was trying to say. What just happened? So <laughs> people just have to bear with me. It's it's how I'm wired today. So but I appreciate you coming in to tell your story today. Amber, I know that you have these letters behind your name that I'm pretty certain involve like the the designation of a social worker, right? Yes. Yes. I'm a licensed master social worker. Yep. And so to see that and then understand where you came from to get that. Like you didn't, you weren't always a social worker. Obviously at one point you were a kid who was, who was also in foster care, right? That's correct. Yeah. I, I'm going to guess there's like a line between those. There's a reason because one of those <laughs> caused the other one a bit. Absolutely. And you'll notice as I share my story, it's one of the things I never thought I would say is that I would be a social worker. Never say never. God always laughs when you say that. And then he goes, he gets about the business of proving you wrong. (laughs) I think that's correct. I I must make him laugh a lot, but I said humor is a good thing, right? Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) There's an old Van Zandt song that says, if you want to hear God laugh, just tell him what your plans are. And I think it's true. (laughs) I think it's true because I must have told him a lot of plans and he laughed a lot and said, watch this. So. So, you know, you start off, you know, in foster care, how old were you and what, what got you brought into the system? 
Yeah. So I actually came into foster care for the final time when I was 12 years old. And so when I say final time, I know that some people are like, well, what does that exactly mean? And I will talk about that a little bit later because there's a part of my history from before the age of eight that I really have no memory. Um, And so it's hard for me to recall it other than what's on paper. And I came into foster care when I was 12 because I lived with my biological dad and he was on about his fifth marriage. And at this time I was the youngest of six children. I don't know what my diagnosis was. I don't know what would be on paper, but I was a challenging child. We'll just say that. Okay. I think everybody could probably relate to this. And we were a a poor family. My dad worked really hard and struggled with some addictions. And so at home, it was very challenging for me in particular, because as the youngest child, I became very frustrating. And what would happen that got me into care was I would be locked in my room, um, which was a very small room. And I'd be locked in it for hours at a time. So I couldn't go to the bathroom. Um, I was an inconvenience for the family. I'd be locked out. I wasn't allowed to eat with the rest of the family. Um, And so I often would steal things. So publicly, I was a a thief and a liar. And at school, that's what I did. I I would steal food in particular. I don't know if anybody likes cake mix, but that was like my hot hand item. I was all about the cake mix. And then I'd be in trouble for that. Of course, I had the police called on me a couple times at school, but I was hungry and I wanted attention and I craved for attention. And I don't know how many people have eaten dog food, but listen, that can be some good accessible stuff. Okay. Cause when I was locked out of the house, I would go do that. Or I'd use a crowbar and break open a can of beans. And I learned how to use a crowbar. So I learned some pretty savvy tricks. I wasn't, uh, go ahead. So it sounds like it. Yeah. You know, we're, we can be pretty creative in crisis. Um, I didn't like to take showers because I would be watched in the shower um, and they would make me strip sometimes before school to make sure I didn't have anything. So pretty much every aspect of who I was was shamed because I was that burden on the family and that, that youngest child syndrome was very difficult. Um, in the home. And so it was a safe place for the other siblings that if they could be angry at me, then they're safe. And I didn't know it at the time, but now that I'm older, I understand a little bit more of where their struggles were with that. So what happened was when I was 12, I got this thing, it's called a friend, right? I didn't know what a friend was, but when I was 12, it was the summer of my sixth grade year. And I had this friend move in next door and it was so cool to have a friend for me. But my dad didn't like it. And so he told me that I was not allowed to hang out with her and that I was going to go into my room and be locked back in my room. Well, during the summer, I didn't have a window on my or glass on my window. And so when you have a commitment to somebody, when you've had nobody, you can work really hard to serve that commitment. And so I wanted to be your friend and he's saying I couldn't. So I told her, well, I'm going to come over tonight. And here's what I thought. I thought I was going to go over to my neighbor's house and live there forever and ever. And it was going to be a happy ending, right? That's not how it is. Yeah. That sounds like a great plan in a kid's mind. (laughs) Right. Because kids don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we're not understanding what's long-term, but that night I 
through what I owned, which was a little red bag of letters from my mom who got divorced when I was one. I didn't really know her, but I had letters and that was important. And some of my writing out the window and as with foster kids or kids from hard places, if you separate from your important stuff, they will go wherever it goes. And so if that's out the window, I'm going out the window. So I jumped out the window, went to my neighbor's house and they took me to the police station. That's probably not what you expected to happen. Not at all. I was very angry. Um, and, and at first, you know, the police actually wanted to call my parents as a runaway. And then what was interesting is they pulled up a record. I didn't know what the record was, but they looked up a record. They found out some things that were going on, that the fact that I was locked in my room, the fact that I wasn't getting food or even access to a bathroom. They said that they were going to put me in police protective custody. And they did got, they got a search warrant the next day and 11 o'clock the next morning, nobody in my house knew I was gone. It was still locked. So, wow. Yeah. That's how I left my house that, that summer. And that's kind of what started what I share is the majority of my story in foster care for that final time. I can only imagine, like, I mean, number one, you mentioned that you were angry and I've had 12 year olds in my house. Um, at this point I've been through five of them going through that age range. And I know that 12 year olds can be angry in general as almost a matter of sport. Um, just because that's part of the age, right? Mm -hmm. But I imagine for you, that probably went a lot different and looked different to a lot of people. Yeah. And I was angry about being separated from a friend more than anything. I was angry about not feeling valued, but you know how I even learned about value actually. And this is interesting. I think for people in child welfare and foster care is on Sundays, I went to church and I went to church on Sundays, not for a lick of the church stuff. I went to church because when I was there, people smiled at me, no matter what I smelled like, no matter what I looked like. And my grandma would have mint. And I loved mints and they would give them to me for free. And so that in itself helped me feel valued. And whenever I have a friend that values me and my dad says, no, you're not worth that. That's what got that anger that said, Ooh, somehow people have been planning in me that I'm more than not valuable. Oh, I hear you there. Yeah. That's that that's one of those interesting things. And, and, you know, as part of my own personal journey, I was, I was in a very um, um, conservative church group growing up. And and that was one of the things that, that I find when I looked at it, as I got older and went, man, all these things that they talk about what you you're supposed to be doing and to be good and, and religious and, and holy and all this. And now mind you, this is coming out of the mind of, of the age I was at, but well, I see all this and I don't see like a lot of people talking about, spending their energy and their time to help the orphan and help the widow. And I kept seeing that, that phrase in, in that book. And, and it seemed like it was something that the group I was a part of just really wasn't terribly interested in. And the more and more that, that I saw that I thought, man, this is, this is like, this sounds like one of the more important callings in here. The, the word love is in here a lot. And I didn't feel that in the place where, where I grew up in, in the, the group that I grew up in. I mean, don't my, my family life was actually pretty, pretty good. I, you know, my mom spanked me a time or two when I didn't deserve it, but I'll let you in a little secret. She probably missed a few times when I did deserve it. 
<laughs> Hopefully she's not listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, she'd have to come get me first, <laughs> but, but yeah. So, you know, that, that's one of those places that I think a lot of times the, the mission gets missed some in dealing with, uh, in dealing with kids and care, because not everybody understands how important that is. And so I'm just curious, like, as you look back across your life, was, was that one of those definers for you? One of those places where, where you really grew in ways that you didn't expect? Absolutely. I would say it's probably one of the most influential, I think for a lot of foster kids too, some, because they reject it so much because of the way it influenced them and some, they go to it so much. And for me, it was that consistent when I was with my dad that I could get some of those basic needs But then, so when I was 12, I went into foster care and foster care, I do believe, and I am thankful for foster care has great intentions. It's also a very broken system. And when I was in foster care, one of the homes that I was in, they didn't really go anywhere. There was a mother. So I first went to a group home. Let me tell you that first. And then I'll tell you about the church aspect. First, I went to a group home, never had uh, another kid. I was their first kid. It was called the Mikasa Sukasa. So my house is your house. And it was a huge home, but they wanted me to have a friend. So they invited a girl over who didn't know that we should respect our boundaries. And so when she wanted a piggyback ride and her hands moved further and further and further down, I remember feeling like I thought this was a friend. See, because I just lost my friend when I came into care. So I felt like it was my fault. My parents didn't let me have anything from the house. They refused to give child welfare anything from the house. So I had no clothes, nothing. And I'd lost my friend. And so I felt like it was my fault. And I was more of that kid who always felt like it was a people pleaser fault. And what can get better though, is we always know there's going to be new things in foster care. So even when I lost this friend, there was a new girl the next day who was coming in and she identified as satanic dressed all in black. She said she wanted to give me out of body experiences. Uh, She threw a death beat in at the foster parent. And so I'm like, oh, what a grace for foster parents who can manage kids with these behaviors. (laughs) Because as a 12-year-old, I'm freaking out. I'm thinking people are going to die. So I go tell my foster mom, and I've been only there for a week. And she says, it's okay, we'll take care of it. And so the next day, I wake up and there's a transporter there to drive me to a new home. So the perspective from a kid was I messed up. It was my fault and they'll move me. Thankfully, I've been a worker. And so I've seen the other side and they were probably putting me in a lower level placement than a group home, but we don't know. And so teaching us and and letting us know and communicating what those changes are or what they're for is really important. So I went to this new home that I was telling you about. And so this is the one where the foster mom, she was wheelchair bound, suffered with depression. The foster dad had depression and they had a 28 year old son who lived in the home with them. And he also struggled with depression. And so they were a functioning, malfunctioning foster home. (laughs) But what I did is on Sundays, I went to church. And the reason I went to church, again, had not a lick to do with church or faith or spirituality. I learned it from that. But what it had was there were people there who were not biased to who I was as that foster kid. Like when I went to school and I had the stigma of foster before my name. 
Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Now back to the show. But what it had was there were people there who were not biased to who I was as that foster kid. Like when I went to school and I had the stigma of foster before my name or that worker came to my house and I was on their sheet of paper instead of a face-to-face person at church, they just saw me as me. And that was meaningful. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine because, you know, so much of, of our belief systems the things that we believe today as a grown adult are things that come out of our childhood, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I work with a lot of guys in, in the dad's group that I'm a part of the leadership in there. And, and part of what we deal with, with a lot of guys is talking through a lot of those belief systems. You know, I have a friend of mine, Jeremy Roadbrook, we interviewed him probably a year or so back, but um, Jeremy's been through some tough stuff himself in life. And, and he's, he talks about that a lot. He talks about, you know, the BS of life, you know, BS is belief systems because you believe things about yourself that are true because you make them true. Right. And your lack of value, the fact that it's your fault, you know, you made the decision to go to your friend's house. It's your fault that you got, you got sent off to foster care. You made the you made the had the conversation with the grownups that said, "Hey, this is this is kind of scaring me. This is not so." You your your decision keeps leading to bad places, and and I've seen that. And like I said, in grown ass men, men who are in their forties and fifties who 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 are still struggling with some of those things, I've got to ask, what helped you walk past that to a place where you can look at it now, understand where it came from. And not still sit in that shame that that comes out of that, because that's the most powerful thing that kids, I think, put on themselves because they don't know what's going on. And so they just sit in that shame. And and for the listeners, one of the things that I think is always important to notice is is guilt and shame are two very, very different things. You you can guilt means I did something wrong. I, I did something wrong. And so that that's where guilt comes from. And guilt can be healthy, especially when you're, you know that 12 year old kid who goes and, and steals stuff from the store because it's what you wanted. And maybe not so much because you stole the food because you're hungry because you're not getting fed, but when you stole the, the toy because you wanted it, right. That guilt can right. be healthy in that place. Shame says that you are bad. Right. And I, I believe that's what most of the kids who go through things like what you're talking about have have to deal with. And that's a lifelong journey for some people. So what helped you walk through that place and, and understand number one, that you had value and number two, that shame was not a definition of you because of what you've been through. It was just that some grown people did horrible things and didn't take care of you the way they should. Yeah, I think it's a process for sure. And so sometimes time is a beautiful thing and not putting pressure on ourselves as people who've experienced trauma in hard places that it's supposed to be overnight because it's not like that at all. And that's why I wrote that book about finding hope is I use stories myself of the challenges and skills that have helped me because it is a journey. Um, and remembering that shame is saying at the end of the day, you're, 
you're not worth anything, but we all are. No, no matter what we accomplish, no matter what we don't accomplish, at the end of the day, we still matter in value. And so what helped me was a few different things. Before I was in foster care, what helped me was little moments of people saying I mattered that maybe I didn't see until I was well into adulthood, but people who would say hi, who would know my name, who would notice when I was out of school, who gave me those extra biscuits at school, who let me come across the street and get a, a, a high C in the summer. Those type of things, they seem so little, but they make huge impacts of putting that sense of worth in us. And then in when I was in foster care, which was my teenage years, what really I think is most influential there was allowing me to make choices and learning from those choices. So not pitying me as a foster kid, but not having unrealistic expectations, applauding extra when I did good um, and giving me ideas of how to fix it if I did bad instead of just that shame. Because my dad and my, my stepmom was all about shame and your fault. And you have to challenge that belief time and time again. And then eventually into adulthood, and I can talk about this story, um, it's about the perseverance in the realization. And this is the first chapter of my book, James, is um, accept that life is tough. That's my first chapter, because we have to acknowledge that there is no easy way out. Even if you're in foster care or you're not, if you're you or if you're me, life is tough, but so are we. And we are equipped to be that. And it doesn't end at 18. So when I was uh, 15, I joined a family I met through a church. We never did permanent or anything. Went back to my hometown. It was very challenging. Uh, I faced a lot of my own shame. I faced a lot of conflict. But what was the most trying was when I was 18, I found out that I had uh, epilepsy. So what they found out is that I had epilepsy because remember I told you before I was eight, I don't remember anything. It was from a head injury of child abuse when I was younger. That's what those police had seen at that police report when my dad had been in prison for child abuse. And so what happened is I ended up having brain surgery. So let me tell you this, I am screwed up in the head. I mean, like literally, it's so fun to tell people that, right? And you can prove it. You've got the scans to show it, right? I know. It's so cool. And so I'm totally relatable to people. And, you know, when I had that as a young adult, I had to relearn to walk. I had to relearn to talk. And I went through anger and I went through grief. And it's okay to be angry in our face. And it's okay to have feelings. But with that comes our choice of how we handle it. And I became seizure free after that. Oh, wow. I don't know that if I answered your specific question, but restate it if you want, but. No, I, I think you, you, you pretty much got it right on there. Um, that that's amazing that, that you managed to become seizure free after that point, because epilepsy is not a small thing usually. Yeah. And they found out that it was due to a head injury is why my epilepsy happened. And and so it's one of those things where another chapter in my book that I talk about is learning from our past. So a lot of times we want to, and we as in foster kids, but also just people who've experienced hard times, 
we want to deflect from it or get over it or fix it. But that's the most memorable things in our life. And that's who creates us as we are. And so we can learn from them, knowing that we have the power inside of us to be different from our past, to learn from the past, to not be that intergenerational repeat of the past. Um, And it takes a lot of time and work to do that, but it's a beautiful thing to know. Absolutely. I, I hear what you're saying. Cause I mean, without that, like, how do we move forward? Right. But you have to come to that realization. What, what helps you realize that? Time was a lot of uh, realizing that we have to learn from our past. And sometimes it just hits us in the face <laughs> that we have to learn from our past. When I was in middle school or excuse me, um, high school, and I moved back to my hometown A lot of people had that stereotype of who I was, you know, as the foster kid or the one who stole and lied, like that was coming back to my hometown where I had done those behaviors. And so getting to the point where we can challenge our thoughts, if we say, if we hear something and when we say it to ourselves that we are not important or we failed or we're wrong or that was bad, then we have to challenge, where did I get that thought? And is it really true right now? and having other people. Um, So I have a whole chapter that's about finding your people. Chapter three is, and it reminds me of you as a foster parent and what you do. That's one of those things. Your people are these people who will not just nurture you and say kudos and all these good things. They should say lots of that too, but they also hold you accountable and they say, you can do better than that. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook, and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. That's one of those things. Your people are these people who will not just nurture you and say kudos and all these good things. They should say lots of that too, but they also hold you accountable and they say, you can do better than that. So I can tell you an example of where I learned this. Um, When I came back to my hometown, I have older siblings that were very angry at me and I had to face them in school. In the first three days of school, I was very shameful and and taking that blame as though I had failed everything. Not everything's in my control. So I wasn't being fair to myself. But then I went home that first day and my new mom, which language is hard to explain people in foster care, new mom. Amen. (laughs) And I was expecting her to say, oh, you poor thing. Oh, that's so sad. And just give me this pity support system, which don't get me wrong. Those are good. But she said something much wiser to me. She said, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do this. No, she might say, no, I didn't say that, but I say she did. And of course she said other kind nurturing things afterwards. But what she was saying is you are greater then you're giving yourself credit for. And I'm going to move that expectation of you up a little bit. 
And that's how we are as foster kids. We don't think we're worth something. We don't think we can accomplish, or maybe this is the best we can be. And we need people, our people that will say, I see you greater than, and I'm going to hold you to that standard. I, I can't disagree with that one bit because I have seen some kids who've come through some horrible things who, who've been through some terrible situations. And, and, um, one of them that I've referred to a lot, I usually refer to him as a, because, well, you know, child privacy laws, right? And so all my kids have either initials or nicknames or, you know, things like that. And, and a is one of the ones who, who made it onto my body. And by that, he's been tattooed right over here. Right. Um, I have three of them that, that have made it onto the tech. All of my kids are tattooed on my body. Oh, my, my seven children are on my left arm, but I have three of them that have been here for a short time who made it in on the tattoo wall over here because some of the things that I learned from him and he came to us as one of the worst cases of abuse the County had seen in, in at least a decade. And to see this, this child come just terrified of the world terrified of the world because the the stories of abuse that we had heard that he went through were, were pretty horrific to be just mild and kind about not giving you all the gross details but when he left our house a year and a half later you wouldn't have known the difference and a lot of that was just the simple fact that that he was able when he came to our place he he was his mom was was his um was the abuser there and he was her primary target of abuse and he and amanda my wife they, they bonded so tightly because this is the first female in his world that like accepted him and treated him well. And, and then just to be able to encourage him to grow and do things that the kids his age could do. And he yeah. got to be a five-year-old little boy when he left that you would not have known what he'd been through because he had that capability that you're talking about. He had that ability to, to just do amazing things. He showed up with three words in his vocabulary, <laughs> cup, milk, and cow. If I remember right, were the three words he knew at three years old. That's that's a pretty small vocabulary at that age, but he was just a, a normal little kid because in his life, yes, he had some hard places. He had some grown adults who did horrible things and treated him bad. However, he was still just as valuable and he was still just as capable. And it did not take long to watch him just flourish once he got to a place where he felt safe enough to do it. Yeah. I love that. And, and it's all about that, that felt safe and knowing what those expectations are. And one thing I think is really important for foster parents, because my husband and I are foster parents, adoptive parents, but I was also in the system, but I've also been a social worker. And I just want people to remember that we don't have to fix kids or, and we don't have really the capability to do that because they are worth every bit of self influence that they have. We got to remind them that they are powerful from the inside out and teaching that instead of trying to do it for them. And that's what you, I hear you saying in that kid is making influence. And some people believe you have to have one person of prime influence, and that's a major impact in your life. I believe that little moments make big impacts, like you were talking about of your wife there, that that kid will remember it forever. As foster kids, I remember every home I've been in, every time, whether it was one day or one year, and I, I remember how I felt. And if I felt valued, I hold that. These kids will too. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And if, if the listeners, if you can hear the kids in the background today, um, th- we don't have a murder occurring in our house. There, I think it's an argument over uh, Mario Kart going on in the other room. So I'll apologize for a little bit of extra noise coming in, but we're talking about kids. So we're just going to let them make some noise. I've got them to finally stop barking at the dog. So not the dog barking at them. It was them barking at the dog. <laughs> But, but, you know, at one point in my life, I would have had a hard time with a lot of that. Um, not, not just with the kids barking and making noise when I've asked them not to be too loud today, but, but, but just that ability for kids to be able to, to do that and, and understand who they are and sit and watch. But these kids have taught me so much. I've learned so much from these young kids and how to find value in places that, that it's easy for us to overlook, you know, um, in the dad's group we're, we're working in right now, we're, we're working through some of this content where, where you learn to, to be grateful for the things in your life. And that's something that I, I don't get me wrong. I don't expect a foster kid to, to be grateful for the life that they're in the middle of at any given moment. Most of the time, most kids, every kid's wired different, but most kids are not going to feel grateful for that experience and rightfully so. Right. They've been thrown into something that, that they didn't deserve and it's challenging for them. But as as foster parents, as, as a neighbor of someone who's a foster parent, as a friend of, of, you know, some foster parents, anybody who has that ability to speak into a young kid's life, who's in a hard place, just being able to, to look at them and be grateful for the fact that they are able to accomplish what they can, even though they come out of some places that would, for most of us, I'm quite certain we would be debilitated by, by a lot of that trauma and struggle. And then, say it out loud to them and let them know that, Hey, dude, that's friggin' amazing. Yeah. You know, today our big amazing moment was the new map or character or something that they earned on Mario Kart. Cause <laughs> my boys are young and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with Mario Kart as our video game experience for this point in time, you know, but, uh, but you yeah. know, it's, it's just being, just saying it out loud. So they understand that they have value. Absolutely. And that's so, so important. And, you know, research says in the field of those who've experienced hard times or trauma, you know, they need uh, three usually to one for every positive or every negative that said they need three. Well, in child welfare or foster care or just trauma as a whole, it's actually seven to 10. They need seven to 10 positive affirmations to encounter just one. So think about a case plan, think about court, think about those visits and the negative things that are noted or read or heard and how many, and that's not even knowing what they're putting in their minds, how important it is to, to say the great things and the little things are beautiful. And I say that also in the book, as I was telling you earlier, I said the first chapter is accept that life is tough, but I don't want to leave you there because the second chapter is believing that tough is tolerable. And, you know, the way I learned that was from foster care. So as much as it is challenging or uh, struggles, it also equips us with some really savvy skills that people who haven't experienced hard time maybe don't have. And we can tolerate things and struggles in different ways from our coping skills that other people can't. And I'm really glad people pointed that out to me. And so pointing that out to your kids, letting them know you're strong. Oh yeah. I mean, some of the stories we've seen that I, I, I see kids walk through, I look at it and go, I, I'm 40 something years old. I don't know if I could handle what they're, what they're dealing with today. Yeah. <laughs> 
it, it is it is so tough. And you know, some of the ways that I've been able to to deal with it has taken time and learning and people like you guys helping us to understand how we've learned. And I wouldn't be able to sit right here and say this or tell my story in intentions of hopefully bringing hope to anybody who works in the field or is in foster care if I hadn't experienced it. And you know what else that does for me is that gives us full circle healing to me to be able to say, oh, look at that. I persevered through that and now I can give back. And that's a final step in healing. Um, I also went to therapy. You know, there's not a, there shouldn't be a stigma in therapy in processing that there's a stage of forgiveness. And you mentioned something at the very beginning that I thought was important um, about grief. Um, and I am a big believer of foster care and life in itself entails a lot of grief. And so being able to have people to talk to and processing that grief is a really strong way of healing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and the listeners will know the, the story well enough, but, you know, some years back, we, we, uh, our oldest daughter passed away and, um, it was a nasty disease. And so, and there's a particular old song that, you know, I mentioned that the church I grew up in and they were big on the old hymns and, of all the struggles I have with some of the things that they believe, that's one of the things I've taken out and I still hold on to today. And there's an old um, Christian hymn that starts out when, when peace, like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Right. And, and I know, I know what that means when sorrows like sea billows roll. I've, I've walked that road. I know what that feels like. And I think there's a lot of us out there that do, but we don't, we don't always want to give knowledge. We, we don't want to recognize the fact that we've been through those sorrows. We want to sweep it under the rug because it's easier to get a, a, a cool picture of, you know, with me and a kid or, or my wife and one of the kids and put some filters on it and post it on Instagram because man, look how good this looks when I do this. Or, you know, one of those Kansas sunsets that we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier, right. And this gorgeous picture and show the world how wonderful our, our life is, but but we don't really want to say, yeah, I, I was, I went through this thing and it was ridiculously hard. And I, I still don't know if I'm over it today. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever be over it and talk about that out loud and, and recognize the fact that we, we have sorrow in our lives. True. So I, you know, that's not like, you know, my dog ran away and I'm sad, right? I get that. And that's not fun, but, but true sorrows we've experienced some of those in our lives, in your life, you've experienced some of those. Uh, every listener has probably got a story. There's a few of you out there who've been fortunate enough not to have that happen in your life yet. But if you haven't, trust me, it's, it's, it's on tap. Mm -hmm. Learning to deal with those sorrows, the deep grief. Yes. And it's so true. You know, I said the word grief, but, and I remember you said sorrow earlier and you are so right. And so I think about you know, when you come into foster care, when you leave foster care, when you move between a home, when you transition into adulthood, when you just so many different things. And that's why I, I wrote it the way I did is because I'd experienced that. And it took me many, many years and a very long time to just accept that life is tough. And in no way does that mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that we don't have the right to an emotion or anything like that. All it is, is that level of acceptance, because when we come to that realization is when we can discover that 
we are stronger and able to manage it. Um, and so whatever role we're in as foster parents or workers or definitely foster kids, just knowing that that sorrow is there and we have to talk about it. We, we have to bring it to the forefront and that is nothing unique. It makes us stronger as we go through that process. I think the Buddhists have a line that says life is suffering. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, there's a lot of truth in that, but what I, what I really think resonated with me was when we talked with Dr. Marissa pay and, and she had a line where she says that pain is mandatory suffering is not. And I thought, you know, yeah, she's on to something there. Yep. Absolutely. And, and that's when, that's when you find hope and, and the hope, if you don't hold hope or in pursuit of hope, what hope is, is hope is the belief that it can be better. And whatever belief that is that you have of in this world or in another, and I am a faith-based person. And so for me in heaven and and in that world, that finding hope is knowing that you can get to something better. And that's going to help us be, as they say, resilient and make it through those things and come out on the other side. So as we deal with sorrow or grief that happens, there is the other side to it. And, you know, a lot of people say, and I've heard this in research recently, that the, the sixth stage of grief, the next stage that's not on there is giving back, giving back whenever you're doing that full cycle of being able to give back as a healed person, or at least healing, because some days I need to go read my book. I mean, some days, because I do a reflection at the end of each chapter. So some people might sit in one chapter for a while as we process healing. That's okay. And some days I need that, but other days I can be healed so that I can come back and give back like you do as a foster parent. I mean, you're giving back, you know, and honestly, a lot of it comes from, from my wife's own experience. My wife was, she was raised in a very difficult childhood. She should have been a foster kid herself. Um, but she managed to always slip through the cracks. It was a place where she could be kind of tucked away. And so that she never got brought into the system. And that's honestly the impetus of the beginning of our journey is that that's what she really felt the need to give back because it was a handful of people in her life who were, you know, people, she still uses names like aunt so-and-so that, that I, I, and I don't know a lot of these people, uh, some of them aren't with us any longer, or for whatever reason, I, I may not have met them or maybe saw them once, but, but people who made a huge impact in her life because they were willing to step in for that brief moment in her experience and allow her to see a hope for something different down the road. And yeah. I think that of all the things that we're selling these days, you know, all the things that that's being, being sold to you on the streets out there. If we could only find instead of the, instead of the, the Coke dealer or the heroin dealer, if we could find the hope dealers in this world to peddle a little bit of hope out to let us know that, man, there's, there's something that that's way better than that heroin high. Yeah. And that's something I definitely want to do and uh, share. And I know that's why foster parents do what they do. And that's what foster kids, if any of them are listening, who's been there, that's what we are, are going to be built to do. That's what we're equipped to do because we have an understanding of it that's so deep and so authentic that it can touch hundreds, millions of people. Yeah, Our, our stories can be that. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's why God gives us certain situations to walk through because we, we have a, a job to do. We just don't know what that 
that we're being prepared for that job in that moment. Yeah. And, you know, gosh, for years, I never told anybody that I was in foster care. You know, when I worked in child welfare, I I mentioned this to you earlier. I went to college. Okay. So my first year of college, I had no car because I had seizures. And so this is where I talk about don't avoid the past because it's a part of who we are. When I look at my son, I see my biological family. You know, there's, there's, it's working through it, not avoiding it. And so I went to college and I was going to um, be a work in a school. And then I decided I didn't like some of the education stuff. And then I was going to be a psychologist. And then I was going to do this and I was going to do anything, but be a social worker, right? Because they screwed up my life and it was, there was a hot mess and all this stuff. So they did a career assessment and they kept saying, you know, you should work in human services. So I I finally gave up and I said, I will take one darn class, one class. So I took a social work class, fell in love with it, never went back, loved every bit of what I could do in social work and being able to give back and go through that challenge of healing and why do I believe what I believe? And then do I agree with that? Whenever they tell me that I'm ugly or not good enough at this or not worthy of this, I hear that, but now I'm going to challenge it and say, is that true? Do I believe in that? And if I did, do I still want to? That last piece is the most important part of it all. Do I still (laughs) want to believe in that? Because I mean, we get to choose what we believe in. Yeah. That's one of those interesting things about free will. We get to choose that. And so often we let our childhood experiences tell us what we believe rather than choose what we should be believing in. Yes. And those belief systems are built by people who don't have our best interests at heart sometimes. That's right. Whether it was a parent you know, a biological parent or a foster parent. Cause you know, where I'd like to think that all foster parents are just as cool as I am. Um, yeah. <laughs> my kids, that. My kids, my kids yeah. would say, yeah, that's not a good thing, dad, but, but you know, let's be honest. There are plenty of bad foster homes out there. There are plenty yeah. of people who are doing foster care for the wrong reason. We interviewed, um, Jen Lilly sometime back. She's a, an actress who's, uh, who's been on, on a handful of movies and a lot of, um, um, what was it? Uh, I think it was days of our lives. Maybe it was one of the soap operas. I should know this cause I interviewed her and she told me, but let's <laughs> be honest. I'm not a great big soap opera guy. Um, never have been really, but, uh, but you know, she, she's, that was one of the things she talked about was that she went to a conference and there was a woman there who was another foster parent who was telling her, Oh no, no, you gotta, you gotta get them rated for this, get them ready for that. And yeah, and you can make this much money on this and this much. And, and the gal had the whole, like, dollars and cents figured out how exactly you can make a lot of money in foster care. And, and I love her, her response to the gal, which was something along the lines of get away from me, you evil woman, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because if you want to chase dollars and cents, number one, if you're in, we're in Missouri here. And if you're in Missouri and you're chasing money in foster care, you are in the wrong place. Go get you That's some right. level marketing stuff. You'll make more money. The, the, the reimbursement pay here is pretty small. And if you're not outspending it and, and foster care doesn't cost you something, you're not doing it right because there's just not much money in it. But some places there are, are plenty of ways to, to rate a kid in a way that you can go make some money off of it. And those people exist. And, and we have to acknowledge that. 
because right. not every foster home is great. You mentioned the ones that you were in who had a, a wheelchair bound mom suffering from depression, a dad suffering from depression and a 28 year old son suffering de from depression of all the places you're going to put a teen girl in struggle in crisis in her own place. That to me sounds like probably the worst thing you could choose. Yeah. And you know, what was interesting about that is they were in my image as a foster kid, a great home, because that's how I would accept that life was tough and believe it was tolerable is because they taught me that this is better than dad's, you know? And so we try to bargain sometimes and justify that we can be suffering and that that's enough, but we are, each of us is worth more than that. And we have to learn that. And what actually happened in that home was, you know, they would threaten, the son would threaten to kill us. Um, they were hunters. And so they had guns locked, of course, but he would pull it out or he'd slam down on the table. Um, and the foster dad watched pornography with some of the older girls, not myself, but with them. And then the foster mom would say that she was going to kill them. And it was just always chaos. But we were resilient as foster kids because we would meet and we'd say, you know, it could be worse. We could separate. We're going to figure out how to manage that. And that's where hard times can teach us great things. We just have to remember that we can learn what not to do as much as what to do from our hard times. And ultimately what happened there was when I was 15, I worked two jobs, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And the day before the foster dad had put his hand on my leg really high. And I told the foster mom, I said, you know, there's, there's something of uh, my childhood that I'm just really uncomfortable with this. And she said, no, don't worry. We won't tell. We won't tell. Well, the next morning she told him and he looked at me and he said that I'd ruined his life. I'd ruined my father's life. And um, he wasn't going to let me ruin his family's life. And I'd been at my mom's before to the, in this story. And so when I went to work upset, you know, what those people did is they took their one moment and they made a big impact and they called my worker and I was moved from that home. Wow. Well, hopefully they, um, wretched into that foster home and shut that, that down as well at that moment, because yeah those are real stories. And, and that's part of what we do here is it's always try to get people to tell their story because I bet you that there was probably a person or two in that situation who really didn't want to want you to tell that story. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's sometimes you'll be in trouble if you tell a story or it's already, like I said, when he said, you're already known as a liar and a thief and who knows what was written on my uh, referral to a foster home. Right. And you know, what was interesting about this house is they wanted to adopt me. Like they had lost a child um, themselves and they would claim that I could be the replacement for that child. And they would actually call me by the name. And what they did when I moved, you are so super awesome. when I was 15 I and they called, is they sent a letter girl. to my new yeah, placement, yeah. giving them a warning thank about all the listening. things that I could possibly thank, do. Thank, thank. And then they would come into the community and ask if I would come back. And on my birthday, they would send me cards. It was very odd. Um, Whoa. Yes. But I didn't know it was odd until people taught me that. 
And so teaching these kids that, hey, this isn't healthy, no matter what level they're at, no matter what's behind their name. Yeah, yeah I'm just... My brain's still back in the place where I want to know if you went back as an adult and smacked the snot out of anybody in that situation. Cause <laughs> you know, I haven't, I haven't seen them or came across them. Uh, no, I haven't, you know, in my book, the last uh, tool that I give before the one of hope is uh, forgiveness. And I talk about that as the last one for a couple of reasons. It has to be last Um, And it can be the most challenging. And sometimes I have to go through that time and time again. And so I don't know how I would be if I did come face to face. But at this point, I feel like I've gone through that process of forgiveness and remembering that that's really for me. It has nothing to do with them. I mean, it does from their situation, but forgiveness is freeing myself from that. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, I'm just going to say, if you need somebody to, to, to deliver the smack because you've forgiven them, just let me know. We're only a state away. I can handle it for you. Um, I I've got big hands, so I mean, <laughs> right. That's like, awesome. I love like, that. That just makes me insane with, with people like that. Cause well, number one, the idea that you could replace another kid and to call you by that name, that, that one hits me a little bit viscerally just because having lost a child, I don't know how anybody gets to that place other than to say that we all have grief and it comes in different ways. Um, and, and I'll leave it at that because I don't have anything else good I can say about that. But you know, the part about forgiveness being for you, you know, that's, that's powerful because I, I, I think a long time ago, I remember who it was. I first heard, I heard it a few times and that's that, that holding on to that anger, holding on to that revenge, holding on to that's kind of like holding on to holding on to, to acid that, that can only eat you. Right. And it's not going to hurt them a bit. And when you let go of that, that anger, that, that revenge feeling that just that need to, to get something back. And, and it wasn't until somebody explained it to me in the way of money that it really clicked for me. And that is if I forgive a debt to someone, right? If, if I loan money to, to someone who I know and I loan them a couple hundred dollars and they're going to pay me back and they choose, they keep not paying me back. And eventually I say, all right, I'm going to forgive this debt. And I tell them that. That doesn't mean that everything's forgotten. Forgive and forget are two totally different words that should not be cousins the way they are. They just happen to start with the same sound. That's it. I can forgive the debt and not expect anything in repayment ever. That does not mean that tomorrow when they ask me to borrow $200, I'm going to trust them and hand them that trust and do it again. I've forgiven the debt, but I haven't forgotten a lesson that I learned. That's right. And that's a great analogy that people can relate to of how you say that, because that's really what we can do with it is we can build strength from it and using things that maybe hurt us or um, burdened us or negative coping skills, however you want to say it, hardships and twisting and turning them to where they equip us with power and strength and knowledge and a different life that we can create. That's, that's the most powerful part of forgiveness is being able to say, I'm going to change it. And that's that intergenerational that's making changes. That's, that's, uh, you know, almost saving lives in the futures. It's not so much almost as it is <laughs> exactly it is. because yeah. I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and, and make an assumption. You, you said you have, you have your own children. Um, they haven't been thrown into the foster care system and taken from you yet, have they? 
No, no, no. And that's that's intergenerational change because of the kids that, that we've had. It's not difficult to start naming off the kids who who were foster kids when we met them, but long before that, their parents were foster kids. Right. Right. And, you know, my husband and I, we have also fostered and adopted, and we were most equipped to do that after I had gone through some of my healing process, which was in adulthood. And that's okay. And give that grace um, and that time needed. If you want to do that, it's just a, a really powerful thing to be able to make changes. You know, another interesting part is people ask me about my dad or why I'm not angry. Yeah, I was angry for a very long time. And again, forgiveness is about us, not them, and understanding that they came from, my parents came from mental health background, mental health issues in their backgrounds. They came from abuse. And that never, ever justifies what they do. It helps me understand but it will never justify because if I let it justify why they are that way, then that would justify why they did that way to me. And I'm not okay with that because we are worth more than that. 100%. And it sounds like you've done a lot of work to understand your value and to, to understand that at the end of the day, some of us have bad people in our lives who were probably hurt by someone themselves when they were little and that, that has just continued to propagate through time. And the only solution I see for it anywhere is to learn that forgiveness is the only way forward. And once you learned that forgiveness and you can let go of that hate and that anger, you have broken a generational problem. Yes. You know, I, I don't know about any of your biological siblings, if, if their kids have ended up in foster care or had any of those issues themselves, but those are generational problems that tend to run through families until somebody finally gets to the point where they go, no, not me, not anymore. I won't do it. And, and break that generation and become something intentionally instead of, because here's, here's another really important piece that I learned is that we can run away from those problems. We can run away from problems all day. But the, the problem with that is, is that running away from bad doesn't mean you're running into good. You can right. run from bad into worse. That's not hard to do. Any of us can sit down and see a spot in our life where we've done something like that. But being intentional about running for, into something good, being intentional about choosing the solution, choosing the path forward, choosing forgiveness and love and how you choose to raise your own family and who you want to put out into the world. Because my God, this world will be different because I lived in it because that's the choice I make. That's right. Yeah. And I, I love everything you say, because that's exactly what I'm talking about um, personally with my story, but in the, in the book and in life and in foster parents, I mean, people are living that. And that's how I am who I am today is because people like you who spark those hopes, people like the listeners, people like the other foster kids that I saw get to the other side, you know, that's how I get there. And so we have to keep believing that that's there. I have a, a biological sister who told me one time that when I left, she became the one, the, the chosen one, if you will, with not a positive statement. And at, she admires me. She says, you know, I, I, you're lucky because you're in foster care. I would never put lucky in foster care in the same statement. But what I will say is, 
I'm hoping to teach her that she is worth more than she ever was told she was, that she can make it. And um, she has kids that were in care and she's had a lot of struggles and how I separate from trying to fix her, but instead just trying to make an impact that can matter. Absolutely. really important. Yeah. One of those things I've learned is, and you mentioned this earlier, is that it's not my job to fix kids who come to my house. I don't have that capability to fix kids. The only thing I can do is create an environment where healing can occur. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, so many people and even myself, sometimes, you know, we get lost in trying to fix people. And I, I think that's so important to say, because I know that can be our intentions, but I don't want anybody to lose their influence in believing that because the influence of helping, equipping, making an impact in people is so great. That is so powerful. That's really where we need to sit. I want people to know that. Yeah, because you don't have the power to to fix my problems and I don't have the power to fix yours. But together, if we connect and we can create communities where that we can we can reach out and and have a safe place that you and I can connect, well, we might be able to help each other down that road. But none of it's going to come out of out of you know out of me fixing someone else because let's just face it. If somebody's not ready to fix a part of their life, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it for them. I think it's Dave Ramsey, who I originally heard say it. Um, the saying is, those convinced against their will are of the same opinion still. And it's it's an old grandmama type saying, right? You, you, can, you can tell somebody how to fix everything a million times, and, and they're not going to hear it. If, if they don't, they don't want to hear it, you can't change them. That's right. They have to be in that place. And, and again, I think the starting place is accepting that life is tough. But in the, one of the chapters I talk about, and so I get to refer to this book because it's, it's me. I mean, it's just authentic to who I am and what my story is. And I say that we have to be aware of our bias. Not that I have a bias or a judgment in any way, shape or form, but I probably do. <laughs> and we have to acknowledge that we do and teaching our kids that they do, that they're making assumptions that everybody's going to hate them or everybody's going to be like this or all foster parents or all workers. Um, And that's teaching hope. That's teaching optimism, which is a resiliency skill to be able to see the other side, to see that there's something good in the future um, is being aware of the bias. So the story I talk about in this is, you mentioned earlier about running, running from things. And I ran for a very long time out of my hometown, as far as I possibly could. And then I had a kid and then I realized, wow, family's important. <laughs> so I came back to where I knew people. But when I came back to my hometown, I wanted to run my fight, flight, freeze. That trauma comes back in life. We, we, it doesn't end at 18. And I assumed everybody in town talked about me as the bad child, the liar, all these things. And by now I'd had head surgery. So they're all like, well, she's really screwed up in the head now, you know, in all these ways. And I was totally wrong. I got invited to a church to share my testimony by a biological aunt and uncle that I thought hated me and come to find out it touched them. And it touched some other people that said, we didn't know the truth. And we're so glad you shared that. And so I was preventing myself from my own healing by assuming instead of asking or asking people to help me understand something. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. 
because our stories have so much ability to reach so many hearts and lives that until we, we get to the place where we're comfortable enough and willing to be vulnerable and share that story out there in the world and not concern ourselves too much about what other people are going to think and say, but that's where our power lies. That lies under that vulnerability. That is right. Yeah. And that is a very, very powerful thing is vulnerability. And it takes a lot of steps and, and sometimes time to get there, but that's okay. Because once you're there, it's a beautiful place to be. And that's that place where you're sitting in hope of what you can do in the lives of others and yourself and influence in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hope is, hope is one of those things I've come to, to realize that it's one of the few true powers. It's one of the places of power we can, we can, uh, we can depend on. It, it always has some power in there for us to, to make things happen, to change things in our life, to deal with the struggles. Um, or, or we can reach into other places like hate and anger and, and vengeance mm-hmm. and sadness and, yeah, we can we can reach to those places too, but I don't think you're going to be nearly success, as successful as you are if you choose hope. Yeah, that's right. And being able to find it can be a journey, which is why I say that the way it is, is I never want to be unrealistic and say that being a foster parent's easy because the listeners are like, oh gosh, it's yeah, you're right. It's not. I never want to say being a foster kid is or an adoptive or even a worker because I was a worker and that's a rough thing on both sides too. But I will say that we can do something with all of that and it can be better in the future and we can do amazing things uh, like you're doing right now. And the fact that you hear the sound in the background, which I don't right now, but you get to tell us about that sound. And that's a beautiful thing um, because you're influencing them. It is because I know their backstory and the fact that they are able to play today is is a million times better than the place they came out of yeah so every morning um, i wake up and i look in the mirror and i know people can't see this on podcast but i have a scar and i'm actually bald in the middle of line of my hair and i get to look every day in the mirror so that's why i say we can't um just get over a pass because there will be things that will remind us and i don't have a choice to that but I get to see in there such opportunity of influence. And I get to see the grace and love that people have given me and said, when they looked at this face, that you are worth it. And look at the challenge for me, it's a physical challenge that you have made it through. And if you can do that, wow, you can do anything. And so it's teaching us, teaching kids to create that belief that we are greater then we give ourselves credit for, and we can change the systems of abuse, neglect, self-worth, all of those. Yes. I love that. I love that. Uh, yeah. My scars are mostly, um, are mostly faded at this point in my life, but I just convinced myself that chicks dig scars and that, that worked for me, but you know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know that it's true, but you know, I just, I use that belief system to get me through all that stuff. <laughs> 
Oh, but you know, I mentioned this maybe earlier, but I love the humor that you use. You know, humor is a beautiful coping skill. And I love puns. Like it's a wonderful thing for me to use puns. And it's so lame, but it's exciting to me. And your humor, humor is a brilliant thing. And so in foster care and trying times and the fact that we're in COVID and life is tough is no reason to be set in pessimistic negativity. I mean, sometimes we have to set boundaries and say, I'm not turning the TV on and I'm going to go read a comic book or joke with my friend who's funny because humor equips us with the ability to handle hard stuff. Oh yeah. My, my, my father was a police officer for a lot of years and I've, I've had plenty of friends and people I've known over the years who, who've worked in the emergency services, whether an EMT riding on ambulance or firefighters. And, and I'll tell you, that's, that's one of the ways that they get through it is, and now mind you, if you don't know any of those guys, I'm going to warn you, it's kind of gallows humor sometimes, right? Because they've yeah. seen the worst of the worst. And so some of their humor gets a little bit dark, but it's, it is, it's one of the ways that we cope with things. Yeah. And, you know, I think in foster care, you know, that's maybe why kids need to be taught healthy humor or um, that it's okay to have humor is because theirs can be a little crude or rude at times. Foster parents. Okay. We have some stories. Oh my gosh. And we could use some pretty intense humor in that. And it's totally okay if it's in a way that's healing and, and hopeful because that's what it's about. <laughs> it's a great thing. So, yeah. and I'm not joking. I mean, but I'm joking about joking. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't had the joy of getting to, to wipe um, poop off the bathroom wall at some point and have to ask yourself, I, how could this possibly get here? <laughs> how, how am I in it? I signed, I signed a piece of paper for this. Like I signed up for this. What is wrong yes. with me? Yeah. Like you, and some of the hard things you can either cry or you can laugh. Yep. And that's a day when I would say something like, well, this is just really crappy. Amen. <laughs> I think I could have named my book that, you know, I think I considered just, just, it's a whole lot of crap, but we can uh, plant crap. We, it fertilizes well. It brings a lot of great roots. There's a lot of beautiful that can come from it. You are a hundred percent right. And that's one of the lessons that we've had to learn over the years is that, the good things in life don't come from where you expect them to usually. Yeah. Yeah. It's full of surprises for sure. Well, Amber, I want to thank you for coming in here and sharing your story because as a foster and adoptive mom, a former social worker and a formal foster, former foster kid, I mean, you've got all the different aspects. You, you, you have the ability to have the perspective of all three of the major players in this arena and not many people can understand to the depth that you do. And the fact that you have come out of it with a smile on your face and a, and a desire to help people walk through it as well. It's just amazing. So you're, you're coming on here. It's just a joy for us to be able to share this for, so people can hear it and understand more. And hopefully for those of you who have been through your own walk to, to be encouraged, to know that there's, there is a better place. There is an end to this that does not look terrible. If you're a foster parent to remember those, those important lessons or learning that smiling and laughing is what will get you through the worst of times. And, and to the, the workers who I know are struggling because everybody's seen a bad worker too. Everybody's seen some good workers, but workers have their own struggles. And my God, I, I can't imagine going through that. So, um, or, or to, if you are in or have been in the system, like there's, 
there's some real things out here in this life where you can help people. And Amber, you're just a wonderful example of that. I want to thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Thanks for allowing me to be here and for all the listeners and the blessings that they share with others. Appreciate it. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Amber's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah.